My name is Deborah King. I am the mother of uh, four wonderful children. I've spent all of my professional life as a registered nurse. I was raised as a Catholic and always believed in an afterlife, had faith in the immortality of the soul. I had then two experiences that I think were very pivotal in my own spiritual development. The first one of those experiences was I was in a horrific car accident right before I started college. I had a day off from school. It was January 1972. I was a passenger in my father's car. And the last thing I remember is sitting at a red light, waiting for the light to turn. And that was it. The very next thing I remember is really being out of my body and looking down on what looked like a horrific accident scene. And I was trying to make sense of this. And pretty quickly, I noticed my body. I recognized myself. I was in this twisted lump of metal. The, the door next to the passenger side where I was sitting had pretty much been almost flattened to the ground. Uh, I was thrown almost fully into the back seat. Of course, there were no airbags at that time. We didn't even really have passive restraint systems. And uh, my father, miraculously, he had minor injuries, but he was able to get himself out of the car. And I was watching him and he was frantically running around the car, kind of holding his head and really panicking, looking at me, trying to wake me up. But I really looked at my body and felt no fear or concern about my body. My concern was mostly for my father at that point. I wanted to do something to tell him I was okay. I was, I was fine and not to worry about me. He was trying to get me out of the car. Of course, he couldn't. I felt both a tremendous sense of peace wherever I was, which I didn't really understand, but also a sense of compassion for my father at that point. And right about the time that I started seeing rescue people and police come, just like that, I was back in my body. I remember opening my eyes and feeling glass on my face, and I was aware that I was bleeding. I had multiple injuries. I was in a lot of pain. Then I heard my father's voice saying, you know, thank God, thank God, Debbie, you're gonna be okay. So that was a very quick out-of-body experience. I now know that was that. I didn't know it at the time. Didn't even know what those experiences were, but I told nobody about it at all. I didn't even tell my own mother. I just knew that it, it did happen. And it was very, very clear to me. But I was getting ready to start nursing school in a very strong nursing program and certainly didn't want to be seen as crazy in any way. So I kind of just kept that experience to myself. And so I completed my nursing program at Hunter Bellevue and I came to Maryland to work as an intensive care unit nurse at Johns Hopkins. And I was working in the medical intensive care unit. By this time, this was about 1977. At the end of one very long and exhausting evening shift, 
We had a, a fairly young man, I would say he was in his 40s. He was in shock, he was not doing well, and we were trying to determine how he got his injuries. But in the process of trying to do the workup, he had a very sudden cardiac arrest. We really weren't prepared for it, we didn't expect it. I remember the team went into full resuscitation mode. We were giving groups of resuscitation drugs, oxygen, we intubated him, everything to save his life. And we worked on this man for quite a long period of time and things were just not looking good at all. We were not able to get a rhythm back for any really length of time. And I was watching the sense of discouragement on the faces of the team members and the chief resident looked at me and he said, you know, Deb, I, I don't think we're getting anywhere and we have to kind of call for the time of death and just really let go. But when he said that, a feeling came over me. The only way I can describe it is an intuitive kind of knowing that we needed to keep going and that our efforts would be rewarded, that somehow just keep going, you're going to get him back. And so I, I looked at the chief resident and I said to him, why don't we go one more round? He looked at me and he said, okay, Deb, we'll go one more round. And so we did. And we gave another round of resuscitation drugs, another round of defibrillations, everything that we could do. And after that, we got a rhythm back. And, you know, I remember applause breaking out in the resuscitation room. We were shocked, actually. We were all so happy and we considered the resuscitation a success. And I was so relieved and happy in that moment that I had followed this intuitive voice, whatever it was. But we were concerned because he wasn't waking up. And so we kind of adopted a wait and see attitude and decided to just support him with a ventilator and as many medications as we could in the hope that he would regain consciousness. I wasn't on duty the next day. It was about two days. I returned back to the ICU and the patient had woken up sometime in my absence. The days I was off, I just was so thrilled for him walked into the patient's room, and the second he saw me, before I had a chance to say anything, he leaned forward in the bed and kind of pulled his oxygen mask away from his face and said, it's you, you're the one. And I froze for a minute, what did I do? And he said, they were working on me. I was watching the entire resuscitation from right up there. And he pointed to the corner of the ICU room he said, I, I was up there, I was watching the whole thing. I, I saw everything. I saw the lead resident with blood on his shirt and you and were conversing with him, which is actually true. He was covered in blood. He had just come from a trauma resuscitation in the emergency room. And he told me details of the resuscitation that there was no way anybody with a flat line on their EKG monitor could have known. He even told me actually how my hair was kind of falling down. I had very long hair in the 70s and it was the end of the shift. My hair was falling down. 
He told me we were having trouble with his endotracheal tube, which was true. We were actually having trouble ventilating him and we had to call anesthesia. He described, you know, you had to call a tall man who had glasses and had a, a blue hat on and uh, blue scrubs, which really was the anesthesiologist that had come to our assistant to try to replace his endotracheal tube and other important details of his resuscitation. I was thinking, how could this person who was in a complete cardiac arrest know these things? How could he tell me these things? I was just frozen. And then he said, but it was you, and I heard you clearly say to the guy in the blue scrubs with the blood on his shirt, when he said, let's stop, let's just call it. He wanted to give up on me. And you said, let's go one more round. I remember getting the chills. This is not a terminology that, that an ICU patient would know. This is how we referred to rounds of resuscitation, drugs and interventions. And he said, you know, in my day, when people said, let's go one more round, it was usually the last call at the bar. And I remember just freezing in place. And he said, thank you. Thank you, nurse, for saying that. I almost lost my voice and I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea how this happened. I just know that there's no way this patient could have known these details unless he did exactly what he said. And I remember a striking knowing inside me at that moment saying to myself, this changes everything. But I really told nobody. Again, this was in the 70s. Here I am at Hopkins in the mecca of medicine and science. I'm certainly not about to tell any of my colleagues what, what happened with this patient. And I continued through my professional life at that point, both in nursing and then having completed a doctoral degree in clinical psychology, I was working at that point as a therapist in private practice. But this experience acted kind of like a magnet in my professional life. It seemed like the more I thought about it, the more patients would tell me about their experiences. And when I transitioned out of critical care after many years into home care and hospice, that accelerated even more. Patients started telling me more about experiences around the time of death, anticipating their death, seeing loved ones who were visiting, coming to visit them. Sometimes they would look at me and they'd say, you know, Debbie, you don't think I'm crazy, do you? And I would always say, no, I know that you're not. I shared nothing about my own experiences, but it was beyond an interest at that point. It was a, a pull, a very strong pull in my own life. I was 54 years old. I had just finished my doctoral research. It was a very rigorous program. My father, who lived with us, who I was incredibly close to for my entire life, was dying of pancreatic cancer, and I was trying to come to grips with that. I was also working uh, as a nursing supervisor uh, at a local hospital, and I was 
just felt like I was pouring from an empty cup. I really was not taking very good care of myself. I felt like something was about to change and went for my annual physical. I remember my primary care physician saying to me, you know, Deb, everything looks normal, but you know, you don't look so great. You need to take better care of yourself. And then shortly after that, the holidays started approaching and I just was heavily grieving the loss of my father. My father had, by that time he had passed, he had passed about six months prior to that in June of that year. I felt lost. I felt like I had really lost my rudder in life. My father was like my lighthouse. I, I didn't really know how to be in the world without my father and I wanted to be near him. And so I, I told my husband I wanted to drive up to his grave site. And it was about a two and a half hour drive. I do remember wanting to get home quickly. I pulled into the driveway, my husband came out and he said, oh, I'm so relieved that you're home okay. You look very, very tired, which I was. I don't remember ever feeling so exhausted in my life. And got into the house and I don't remember any of this. This is recalled by my husband. He said, I kind of robotically put down my purse and hung up my coat and started walking upstairs. He also told me afterwards that something very intuitive came over him and he kind of really got an intuitive sense that I, I somehow was just not all right. He really insisted on staying there. He just was following his intuition. And so I got ready for bed and decided to kind of read for a while, sitting up in bed. And he described that as I was reading my book, I started to sit bolt upright all of a sudden in the bed, put my hands up to my head and said, oh my God, Bob, I am so dizzy. I'm just so incredibly dizzy. With that, I instantly kind of fell over, slumped over the book, and I was not breathing. He checked for a pulse. I had no pulse. And I actually had taught him CPR using a video from the American Heart Association because my father, who lived with us, had a cardiac history. And so he quickly went into actions, began CPR at the same time, called 911 and continued CPR until the rescue squad arrived. I was without a pulse at that point for at least 10 minutes. It was a witness to rest, which was a very good thing, but it was probably 10 or 15 minutes before the rescue squad arrived and started providing expert resuscitation and advanced life support. Of course, my husband was watching this and it was going on and on and they were giving me defibrillations, you know, shocking me multiple times. They were not able to get me back. He kept thinking to himself, you know, they're gonna stop, this, this isn't working, I'm losing her. But somewhere around the sixth or seventh shock, maybe more, I'm not really sure, they got a pulse back. There were IVs running, they put me on a stretcher and told him that they were gonna immediately transport me to the emergency room. Can I return this love-hate relationship with cookies? Start today at www.com. 
I had arrested several more times or lost a viable rhythm in the ambulance. When I arrived at the hospital, more of the same was happening. And after a long period of time, the physician came out and spoke to my husband and he said, look, things are just not going well for your wife. I, I don't think she's gonna survive this. And if she does, I'm not quite sure she's gonna survive it with neurological function intact. And at that point, he was able to see me in one of the ER bays and I started having something called the cerebrate posturing, which is something I had seen many times as a critical care nurse. And it's, it's an abnormal body posture that the body goes into when there is really severe and often irreversible brain damage. And after some time, two physicians came out and said, we got her back. We've seen this posturing. This is often really not a good prognostic sign for somebody to have neurological function return after a cardiac arrest, especially one that happened at home. But there is one thing that we can try. It's a fairly new protocol and it's called therapeutic hypothermia. And what we all do is lower your wife's body temperature to try to protect her neurological system from damage. We really don't know if it's going to work, but we don't think we have anything to lose. And my husband agreed. He thought, well, you know, if things are looking that bad, do it. Go ahead, try it. And with that, they began. I was brought up to the intensive care unit, unconscious, and remained in a coma. And so my NDE experience began in the middle of my cardiac arrest, my resuscitation, coma. I really can't tell you when it began. I can just tell you that the first thing I remember was being in what I would call a black void. I say void because I really didn't see any boundaries, but yet somehow I sensed that this was kind of a holding place. I, I knew quickly that I was out of my body and I wasn't afraid at all, actually. There was no fear. It was almost like a very soothing, soft, kind of velvety blackness is the only way I can describe it. It was comforting. And I kind of knew that I would not be here for long. And, and I thought, well, where am I anyway? And then the thought occurred to me that I was probably dead. And what do all good nurses do when there's something they want to investigate? They do an assessment. And so I actually quickly did the body check. I kind of felt for my arms and my legs and my body and my head. And I was like, okay, no arms, no legs, check, no head you're definitely out of your body. And I remember being totally fascinated by that, thinking, okay, you really have died. I don't know how this happened, and I really didn't care, actually. I was feeling pretty great, and I, I still felt like myself. Out of my body, I was just pure awareness. I was slightly aware at that point that there was sort of a light body is the only way I just could describe it, that there was some light coming from me. Although 
it wasn't very prominent at that point. And when I felt that anticipation of what's next, as soon as that thought occurred to me, I felt my consciousness being propelled out of that black void into what I would only describe as an amazingly beautiful night sky with bright lights and beautiful stars, colors I had never seen, vivid rays of light, and what appeared to be almost a very intricately woven spider web of light. It's the only way I can describe it. The stars, it was almost like I was looking at constellations. And I was a bit of a science nerd, so part of me at that point was kind of looking to see if I could actually recognize constellations, and I didn't. They were completely different formations, but none of them seemed haphazard. They all seemed purposeful, and it was just so beautiful, almost as if you were looking through the most powerful telescope you could ever look through. I remember feeling that I was just suspended in this web, and somehow also I was aware that I was part of it, which was really interesting. I was felt separate at first and then very quickly felt that not only was I a part of this web of light and purpose, but I was an important part of that web. And this kind of blew me away. I was amazed. I was like, wow, I'm part of this. I really couldn't make sense of it, but I was okay with not understanding how I got there, what this was. I just really allowed myself to kind of feel suspended in that and to just be. Uh, there was no place for me to go, no place I wanted to be. I had no sense of my past or my future. In fact, there was no sense of time whatsoever. Everything was happening in the now and all at once, which was a little bit mind boggling, but I just loved it. And I became very aware that my five senses really did not apply to this place. I say I was seeing these lights and this matrix and web, but I really wasn't seeing it with my eyes. In fact, at some point, the lights were so bright and beautiful that I remember saying to myself, you know, don't look directly at them because they're so bright, they'll hurt your eyes. And when that thought occurred, something pulled me actually to look directly at them and I did. It's almost like I was able to join with them. It's hard to kind of find the words, but I looked at them and I kind of looked through them and I got the sense that they were also looking through me into almost the deepest part of me. And I could kind of also see and take in information that was kind of 360 degrees, not in a linear way that we do in the, in the physical world. And I also felt and heard these harmonic vibrations. I would say it was like the most beautiful choir I certainly had ever heard, but not human voices just incredibly beautiful harmonic sounds 
and also dissonant sounds, but somehow they all worked together in an amazing, purposeful and beautiful way. And I just was reveling and soaking in the, the magnificence of this place and the awareness that I was somehow part of it. And at that moment of surrendering that desire to figure it out and understand it, I started to feel that I was moving at a pretty high rate of speed through this light matrix and became aware very quickly that these light energies were all souls. Some of them I recognized, some I didn't, but I still felt I knew them. I knew I had been there before. And I knew that every orb of light was unique, but yet there is absolutely no separation. They are connected to each other in a way that is just magnificent and I'm connected to them. And so I continued moving, felt no fear at all about, well, I'm moving through this light matrix, I'm going pretty quickly and just really was loving it and was shown in almost kind of the way I can describe it was in front of the lights. There were very rapid images of different events from the life of those souls from the physical and earthly life. I, I had seen some of my own in what I might call a life review, but actually the focus was not really on my own. Interestingly enough, the focus was on these frames. It's the only way I can describe them of experience that were connected to the souls. But I kept thinking, oh, it's going too fast. I can't really see. It was almost like I was watching a PowerPoint slideshow that was just going too quickly. And you want to tell the speaker, hey, slow down. I want to take notes. But I received the message that it really was not about the events. The important message was to watch how those events affected the souls. And I started focusing on the orbs of light and the souls. And the message was given to me that nothing could harm the souls, no matter what these events were, that the soul remained immortal and intact. And I was shown a lot of things. I mean, births, deaths, and some pretty frightening images, conflict, war, people who had been traumatized in different ways. And again, I focused on watching the light and I was told repeatedly, you see, none of these things can affect the soul. This is who you are. And nothing that's happened to you in your own life can really affect this except for one thing. I thought, well, what is that? What is that one thing? And then I was shown slower images of events from both my life and from the life of the other orbs in the matrix. And the commonality of these events were all events where people had shown love or tremendous compassion to people who were suffering, they had helped somebody, uh, smiled at somebody in a, in a grocery store, 
simple events or helped somebody through a tremendous illness or shown compassion. And when those events were shown to me and they were very clear that they were events of love and compassion, the lights became intensely brighter. Their vibration became quicker. It's the only way I can describe it. It was kind of a vibration of energy and light that became so intensely bright. And the message that I received was, you see, this is who we are. This is who we were created to be. We are loving beings. Love and compassion is what makes us. This is where we came from. This is where we're going to return to. And this is really all that matters. This is really all that can impact the soul. And I remember just taking that message in and just feeling just so, so warmed and overwhelmed with that amount of love that I was witnessing and feeling. And I can only describe it as an unearthly love. It was nothing like any love I had experienced. The closest I can describe it really, and it doesn't even come close, was really remembering when my, my first child was born and holding him and just locking eyes with him, feeling a love overtake me that I really had never felt for any anybody before and knowing that we would be connected forever on a on a spiritual level. That that's the closest I can come, but it really doesn't even describe it. And it was just so wonderful. I thought, well, you know what? I really never ever want to leave this place. I want to be here. I'm home. I know that this is where I came from and now I'm back here and there's nothing that's ever going to get me to leave here. And when that thought occurred to me, I began moving again. And I kind of sensed that I was moving away from the larger matrix. And I became aware of two light energies. As they came closer to me, I recognized instantly who they were. And when I say that, of course, they weren't in their physical form in a human body. Of course, neither was I at that point but I recognize them by their energy. And the first one that started communicating with me, you know, there was no speech, it was all telepathic. I recognized instantly as my ICU patient that had had the out-of-body experience and had returned to his body and told me about his resuscitation and I was surprised, but I was so overjoyed to see him. And I was like, wow, it's really you. He was like, well, yes, of course it's me. I, I wouldn't be anywhere else. I, I'm here to, to give you a message. There really aren't any accidents in life. When we had that experience, when you were a young nurse, that was not an accident. One of the important missions of your life is you really need to share that. You kind of kept that experience to yourself. You didn't share it with anybody, but now you have to do that. You know, now is the time that can help a lot of people. And I was very, very happy to hear that from him. All of a sudden it made sense. 
Uh, didn't make any sense back in the 70s, but at this moment in this place, it made total sense to me. I was like, wow, I'll take that assignment. Yeah, I'll do it. That's who I am. But really, pretty quickly, I also realized that if I did accept that assignment, that he was telling me I, I had to go back. I had to go back to Earth and I had to go back into my body. And I did not like this awareness at all. And I shared it with him and I said, well, it sounds very worthy, but really kind of like, can't you give that job to somebody else? Let me kind of just pass that on. And he said, well, no, actually you've already agreed to go back. And I was, no, not me. Uh, I, I didn't know where you got that one from, but I, I certainly didn't agree. And he said, well, no, you actually agreed to go back before you even came here. And this really confused me. I really couldn't make any, any sense of this. And I thought, well, I'm not sure where he's getting his information from, but I didn't agree to this. And he said, it's okay. It's okay. You agreed to it. You have a choice, but you've already made that choice. And as he said that to me, his light started fading. And I was aware that, that he started moving away and that the second light that had come into my space, who I recognized instantly as my father, was now going to speak with me. And I just was so overjoyed to see my father. I, I just really cannot even put it into words. And I was like, Dad, oh my God, it's you. And he was like, well, of course it's me. Where else would I be? And I was just, just so overwhelmed. And I would say I, I felt like I was crying, although I don't think I was because I didn't have a body, but I was, I was just so thankful to be with him. And I said, oh, now I don't ever want to leave. I want to stay here with you. I just don't ever want to be separated from you again. I was so close to my father in life that now that I had been re reunited with him in this wonderful place of love and light, I didn't want to leave him. He said, well, well, don't be silly. We can never really be separated. We never really were separated. I left my body and I died, but I never really left you. I've been with you this whole time and I'm with you now. And once you go back, I will be with you. I'll never leave you. You can never really leave this place. It's a part of you. Don't be afraid to go back and do this work because you're never going to be alone. We will always be with you and I will always be with you in truth this place and these the souls and the divine has always been with you it's been a part of you and i somehow accepted this i trusted that even if i didn't understand it if my father told me this that he would not he would not steer me wrong and i accepted this and i said okay dad if if we're not going to be separated okay i'll, I'll go back and i felt myself really being pulled away from that place. And pretty quickly, I was hovering over the ICU bed and I saw my body. Well, gee, this really doesn't look good. I saw that I was hooked up to a, a respirator. I 
had multiple IV lines in, cardiac monitors. I recognized the unit. I had worked there as a nurse, and I knew what those pieces of equipment meant. I also noticed two details. I noticed that my eyes were gently taped closed, which usually happens in patients who are comatose to avoid corneal injury. And I also noticed, I couldn't really see if I was restrained, but there were restraints on my wrist. I couldn't really see if they were tied, but I, for a minute, got very excited because when I saw this, I thought, wow, they don't expect me to recover because I've been in a coma. That's my body. And the only time those things happen is when they don't want the patient to wake up abruptly and pull out their breathing tube or their IV lines. And so I don't have to go back in there. I was really kind of relieved. I looked at my body again and then looked at the nurses and the doctors uh, that were around the ICU and I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to fit this expanded sense of self in that body anyway. That's not going to work. There's just no way I'm getting into that, into that little body. But as soon as I kind of had that moment of sarcasm, like that's not happening, then I was in my body. I would say it felt like a, almost like a suction. And I all of a sudden felt a sense of not being able to breathe, feeling very, very confined, but somehow regained consciousness. And the next thing that I saw was my endotracheal tube, my breathing tube, kind of sitting on my chest, kind of on my abdomen. And I thought, uh-oh, you pulled out your breathing tube. And the alarms were going off. Nurses and physicians were running towards the bed. And are you okay? Can you breathe? And I couldn't speak. And I was thinking to myself, why are you looking at me like you saw a ghost? Why are you so shocked? I'm fine. And they were asking me all kinds of questions. Can you breathe? You know, what's your name? Where are you? Typical orientation questions. But in my consciousness, I was still back there. I was still in a spirit body. I really, I knew I was back in my physical body, but I felt the empowerment and the expansiveness that I felt when I was out of my body. And I felt fine. I wasn't fine, but I felt that. And I just couldn't speak, wouldn't answer them. They were getting more and more distraught. The intensivist stepped forward, the critical care physician, and he said, finally, he was just so exasperated. And he said, Deborah, just, just say something. And I thought, well, you know, if I don't try to say something, they're just going to keep bothering me. And so, you know, my throat was very sore. I, it's very hard to even get the words out. But I heard coming out of my mouth, well, I've had better days. And he kind of jumped back, almost in shock, and turned to the nurse and he said, you know, I think she's going to be okay. I thought to myself, well, of course I'm going to be okay. Everything's okay. I didn't at all feel like I had imagined where I was or hallucinated. It was very real to me in that moment. In fact, it was much realer than where I was. I knew from my 
what I can remember of my experience that this was not good. <laughs> I, I certainly had undergone something that was terrible, but I really didn't feel that the, the majority of me was back in my body, even though I knew it. I, I still felt more in spirit and was still wanting on some level to find that kind of magic wand that I could wave to go back there. And so I didn't doubt it at all for one minute. It was too real. The only way I can describe it is kind of like what I was experiencing in that moment felt like it was in just plain black and white. And the experience I had had out of my body was really in color, technicolor, IMAX, whatever you want to describe it. And that was real and this did not seem real, even though I, I knew that this is where I was and, and I had to deal with it. And I was told that what had happened to me was that I had had a cardiac arrest at home and that I had had ventricular fibrillation. My long-term memory kind of kicked in, the part that was working, and I said, well, you know, you, you definitely got, you have it wrong. People do not have ventricular fibrillation at home and live. And if they do, they certainly don't have neurological function. And mine at that point had some challenges, but this did not make sense to me. I said, oh, you got it wrong. I must have had, maybe I had an atrial arrhythmia or another kind of heart rhythm disturbance. And so my recovery was challenging. I had word finding difficulty. I had memory problems. I felt very disoriented. I still felt like my experience was not only real, but I was trying to integrate it somehow with being here and being back in the physical world and it really wasn't working very well. I was trying to pray and meditate and nothing in my own experience uh, as a Catholic or as a nurse or in any of my life experience had prepared me for this. It was kind of like I had one foot there and one foot here and I didn't know how to kind of navigate being back in the physical world. But over time, that started to improve. My neurological problems started to get better, and I was able to return to my work as a psychotherapist at that point in private practice. But that set up some real dilemmas for me because at times when I was working with deeply depressed patients, or patients who had suicidal thoughts and were saying to me at that point in my life, I can't live in this world anymore. I believe there's an afterlife. There's a peaceful place waiting for me. I think I should just end my life. And this just set up such a dilemma for me. Of course, all my training had rightfully prepared me to preserve life under any circumstances to help people out of depression and out of discouragement. And yet I had come from this amazing place of love and peace. And 
certainly did not want to disclose any of those experiences that wouldn't have been appropriate, but yet there was something that told me, but gee, if I could just tell part of this to people, perhaps somehow they would be helped. But then there was this other voice that said, well, wait a minute, if you share this with people who are feeling suicidal or depressed, they might say, okay, well, then I definitely am going to act on this. And so it was very, very confusing for me. I, I, I tried to be as authentic as I could, which was the most important thing to me as a therapist. But this is not something I knew what to do with. And so I would refer them to, at this point, the mounting near-death experience literature and some things that I thought would comfort them and then use the tools that I had learned in my doctoral training to help people. Uh, but it became more and more confusing for me. And so I, I gradually decreased my caseload, started working with people who were not as fragile, not as deeply depressed, and gradually left private practice and increased my academic load where I was a professor of nursing and did that almost exclusively and just made some peace with the fact that it would take me some more time to be able to understand how I could use this experience to help people and to really integrate this into the curricula of healthcare professionals, into nursing curricula, clinical psychologists, social workers, really all people in the helping professions because really we're here to heal body, mind, and spirit. We're holistic beings. And so many healthcare professionals are feeling discouraged and are seeking the support of a spiritual perspective. They're hearing from a lot of their patients about these experiences that they had during their ICU stays and they, they don't have the tools with which to respond to them. What do I say to people who say, okay, well, Deb, your background is in nursing. You've been a nurse your whole life. You know this was oxygen deprivation. This was a hallucination. I understand where that skepticism comes from. I'm trained in science. I'm trained to be the ultimate skeptic. But I think for me, the answer is very simple. My patient back in the 70s was in full cardiac arrest. He had no blood pressure no pulse. There was no perfusion to his brain and therefore accessing what I know of science, he was not able to have a conscious experience. His brain was not working. And in my own experience, I had no pulse, no blood pressure. I was clinically dead for probably over 20 minutes, maybe longer. I had rested at home. It took a while for the resuscitation crew to arrive. Then I had repeated arrests. So it's pretty clear that under those circumstances, no oxygen going to the brain. We were taught, I just remember learning in nursing school, oh, you know, four to six minutes without oxygen to the brain and the brain doesn't function. There's no more brain activity. And even though I think we know now that probably that's not exactly correct. We also know that in the absence of any perfusion to the brain, 
really one is not capable of having a hallucination because there's no conscious activity. And so before this experience, I believed in an afterlife. I believed my patients, what they were telling me. I had no choice but to believe my ICU patient because what he reported to me was not a hallucination. He reported what the chief resident looked like, the blood on his shirt, where I was standing. There's no way with no pulse or blood pressure, he could have told me those details. So now it's not a belief, it's a knowing. I know that this is true. And I think one of the ways that we can understand this through science is really to kind of shift the paradigm and the understanding that we have about really what the brain is. I certainly was taught in science that the brain generates consciousness, that it is the creator of consciousness, and that when the heart stops and blood perfusion stops and there's no perfusion to the brain, there's no consciousness because the brain is not working. And I think if we step out of that and embrace what I did during my experience, which is the clear awareness that brain does not generate consciousness. The brain is really a receptacle for consciousness, an antenna of sorts that filters our conscious experience. I've read the books by Evan Alexander, who I have tremendous respect for as a, a former neurosurgeon. He can articulate this at a much higher level of sophistication than I have, but this is really where I think the paradigm needs to shift in science so that we understand that consciousness is not anything we create. We are part of it and we will return to it. Since this experience, I know that we are first and foremost spiritual beings and that we have a very temporary physical experience, that we are created from spirit, we return to spirit, and for a very brief period of time, in a physical lifetime, we experience this life to really learn important lessons for the benefit of our soul, and primarily to learn how to love unconditionally. I believe that probably happens to us more than once. We probably make choices to return to the physical world more than once. And so this is something that I really hold on to and live with every day. I wake up every morning and pinch myself. Even sitting here doing this interview, it's still on some level very unreal to me and, and, and a gift. It's just every moment is precious. My children, my family, my friends have never been as precious to me. And every morning I, I really wake up, um, no matter what the challenges in my life are, with the knowing that, okay, I've been given another day of life. I've got to do my best work. I've got to be my best person. I've got to try to improve. I've got to work through my challenges. This is why I came back. This is why I'm here. And I believe that we are having a spiritual awakening, that this is happening, that 
science and spirituality once seen really as different approaches to life that really could not be integrated. I really believe we're at a, a very exciting and important place of integrating both of those, which has tremendous implications for healthcare professionals and for healers. After all, I mean, I'm here because of science. You know, Western medicine at its finest saved my life. But intuition also played an extremely important role. And so I think I'm a living example of the best combination of both science and spirituality. And I believe that is now really what my my life's work is about, is about bringing that message to healthcare professionals. There's so much wonderful work about near-death experiences, and that term didn't even exist when I had the experience in the 70s, but you know, the pioneering work and ongoing work of Dr. Raymond Moody, the work of Dr. Bruce Grayson, and so many others like him. We have the International Association of Near-Death Studies, which produces some, such incredible work for the public to access this, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. We really have so much now to work with. None of this is accidental. This is happening for a reason, and I believe it's, it's really to help humanity, and there is a lot of despair in our world, a lot of darkness, tremendous mental health crisis. If we were not careful as a matrix of light beings, if you will, and we're not aware of our ultimate responsibility, which is to have tremendous compassion and love for everybody and everything that we share this planet with, including the planet itself, that we run the, the very real risk of, of just really being overrun by that darkness. And there is light. That is the message. There is always light. We are never separated from it. It reminds me of the words of St. Francis of Assisi, who said, all of the darkness in the universe cannot extinguish the light of one single candle. I love those words because we do have a lot of darkness in our world right now. But not only can we all bring light, but we all need to bring light. This is what we need to do, the light of love and compassion. And I believe that that, that will penetrate the darkness that we are living in and living through.